Section 32 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Self-Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Examples, Models, Part 1. Ever their phantoms rise before us, our loftier brothers, but one in blood. By bed and table they lord it o'er us, with looks of beauty and words of good. John Sterling Children may be strangled, but deeds never. They have an indestructible life both in and out of our consciousness. George Eliot there is no action of man in this life which is not the beginning of so long a chain of consequences as that no human providence is high enough to give us a prospect to the end thomas of malmesbury example is one of the most potent of instructors though it teaches without a tongue it is the practical school of mankind working by action which is always more forcible than words precept may point to us the way but it is silent continuous example conveyed to us by habits and living with us in fact that carries us along good advice has its weight but without the accompaniment of a good example it is of comparatively small influence and it will be found that the common saying of do as i say not as i do is usually reversed in the actual experience of life all persons are more or less apt to learn through the eye rather than the ear, and whatever is seen in fact makes a far deeper impression than anything that is merely read or heard. This is especially the case in early youth when the eye is the chief inlet of knowledge. Whatever children see, they unconsciously imitate. They insensibly come to resemble those who are about them, as insects take the color of the leaves they feed on hence the vast importance of domestic training. For whatever may be the efficiency of schools, the example set in our homes must always be of vastly greater influence in forming the characters of our future men and women. The home is the crystal of society, the nucleus of national character, and from that source, be it pure or tainted, issue the habits, principles, and maxims which govern public as well as private life. The nation comes from the nursery. Public opinion itself is for the most part the outgrowth of the home, and the best philanthropy comes from the fireside. Quote, to love the little platoon we belong to in society, says Burke, is the germ of all public affections. End quote. From this little central spot, the human sympathies may extend in an ever-widening circle until the world is embraced. For though true philanthropy, like charity, begins at home, assuredly it does not end there. Example in conduct, therefore, even in apparently trivial matters, is of no light moment, inasmuch as it is constantly becoming interwoven with the lives of others and contributing to form their natures for better or for worse. The characters of parents are thus constantly repeated in their children, and the acts of affection, 
discipline industry and self-control which they daily exemplify live and act when all else which may have been learned through the ear has long been forgotten hence a wise man was accustomed to speak of his children as his future state even the mute action and unconscious look of a parent may give a stamp to the character which is never effaced and who can tell how much evil act has been stayed by the thought of some good parent whose memory their children may not sully by the commission of an unworthy deed or the indulgence of an impure thought the veriest trifles thus become of importance in influencing the characters of men Quote, a kiss from my mother said west made me a painter End quote. It is on the direction of such seeming trifles when children that the future happiness and success of men mainly depend. Fal Buxton, when occupying an eminent and influential station in life, wrote to his mother, quote, I constantly feel, especially in action and exertion for others, the effects of principles early implanted by you in my mind. End quote. Buxton was also accustomed to remember with gratitude the obligations which he owed to an illiterate man, a gamekeeper, named Abraham Plasto, with whom he played and rode and sported, a man who could neither read nor write, but was full of natural good sense and mother-wit. What made him particularly valuable, says Buxton, were his principles of integrity and honor. He never said or did a thing in the absence of my mother of which she would have disapproved. He always held up the highest standard of integrity and filled our useful minds with sentiments as pure and as generous as could be found in the writings of Seneca or Cicero. Such was my first instructor, and, I must add, my best." Lord Langdale, looking back upon the admiral example set him by his mother, declared, quote, If the whole world were put into one scale, and my mother into the other, the world would kick the beam. Mrs. Schimmel Pinnock, in her old age, was accustomed to call to mind the personal influences exercised by her mother upon the society amidst which she moved. When she entered a room, it had the effect of immediately raising the tone of the conversation, and as of purifying the moral atmosphere, all seeming to breathe more freely and stand more erectly. Quote, in her presence, says the daughter, I became, for the time, transformed into another person. So much does the moral health depend upon the moral atmosphere that is breathed, and so great is the influence daily exercised by parents over their children by living a life before their eyes, that perhaps the best system of parental instruction might be summed up in these two words, Improve Thyself. There is something solemn and awful in the thought that there is not an act done or a word uttered by a human being, but carries with it a train of consequences, the end of which we may never trace. Not one, but, to a certain extent, gives a color to our life and insensibly influences the lives of those about us. The good deed or word will live, even though we may not see it fructify, but so will the bad and no person is so insignificant as to be sure that his example will not do good on one hand or evil on the other. The spirit of men do not die, 
they still live and walk abroad among us it was a fine and true thought uttered by mr disraeli in the house of commons on the death of richard cobden that quote, he was one of those men who though not present were still members of that house who were independent of disillusions of the caprices of constituencies and even of the course of time there is indeed an essence of immortality in the life of man even in this world no individual in the universe stands alone he is a component part of a system of mutual dependencies and by his several acts he either increases or diminishes the sum of human good now and for ever as the present is rooted in the past and the lives and examples of our forefathers still to a great extent influence us so are we by our daily acts contributing to form the condition and character of the future man is a fruit formed and ripened by the culture of all the foregoing centuries and the living generation continues the magnetic current of action and example destined to bind the remotest past with the most distant future no man's acts die utterly and though his body may resolve into dust and air his good or his bad deeds will still be bringing forth fruit after their kind and influencing further generations for all time to come it is in this momentous and solemn fact that the great peril and responsibility of human existence lies mr babbage has so powerfully expressed this idea in a noble passage in one of his writings that we here venture to quote his words quote, every atom he says impressed with good or ill retains at once the motions which philosophers and sages have imparted to it mixed and combined in ten thousand ways with all that is worthless and base the air itself is one vast library on whose pages are written for ever all that man has ever said or whispered there in their immutable but unerring characters mixed with the earliest as well as the latest size of mortality stand forever recorded vows unredeemed promises unfulfilled perpetuating in the united movements of each particle the testimony of man's changeful will but if the air we breathe is the never-failing historian of the sentiments we have uttered earth air and ocean are in like manner the eternal witnesses of the acts we have done the same principle of the equality of action and reaction applies to them no motion impressed by natural causes or by human agency is ever obliterated if the almighty stamped on the brow of the first murderer the indelible and visible mark of his guilt he has also established laws by which every succeeding criminal is not less irrevocably chained to the testimony of his crime for every atom of his mortal frame through whatever changes his severed particles may migrate will still retain adhering to it through every combination some movement derived from that very muscular effort by which the crime itself was perpetrated End quote. thus every act we do or word we utter as well as every act we witness or word we hear carries with it an influence which extends over and gives us color not only to the whole of our future life but makes itself felt upon the whole frame of society 
we may not, and indeed cannot possibly, trace the influence working itself into action in its various ramifications amongst our children, our friends, or associates. Yet there it is assuredly working on forever. And herein lies the great significance of setting forth a good example, a silent teaching which even the poorest and least significant person can practice in his daily life. There is no one so humble but that he owes to others this simple but priceless instruction. Even the meanest condition may thus be made useful, for the light set in a low place shines as faithfully as that set upon a hill. Everywhere and under almost all circumstances, however externally adverse, in moorland shilings and cottage hamlets, in the close alleys of great towns, the true man may grow. He who tills a space of earth scarce bigger than is needed for his grave may work as faithfully and to as good purpose as the heir to thousands. The commonest workshop may thus be a school of industry, science, and good morals on the one hand, or of idleness, folly, and depravity on the other. It all depends on the individual men and the use they make of the opportunities for good which offer themselves. A life well spent, a character uprightly sustained, is no slight legacy to leave to one's children and to the world, for it is the most eloquent lesson of virtue and severest reproof of vice, while it continues an enduring source of the best kind of riches. Well for those who can say, as Pope did, in rejoinder to the sarcasm of Lord Hervey, quote, I think it is enough that my parents, such as they were, never cost me a blush, and that their son, such as he is, never cost them a tear. It is not enough to tell others what they are to do, but to exhibit the actual example of doing. What Mrs. Chisholm described to Mrs. Stowe as a secret of her success applies to all life. Quote, I found, she said, that if we want anything done, we must go to work and do. It is of no use merely to talk, none whatever. It is poor eloquence that only shows how a person can talk. Had Mrs. Chisholm rested, satisfied with lecturing, her project, she was persuaded, would never have got beyond the region of talk. But when people saw what she was doing and had actually accomplished they fell in with her views and came forward to help her. Hence the most beneficent worker is not he who says the most eloquent things, or even who thinks the most loftily, but he who does the most eloquent acts. True-hearted persons, even in the humblest station in life, who are energetic doers, may thus give an impulse to good works out of all proportion, apparently, to their actual station in society. Thomas Wright might have talked about the reclamation of criminals, and John Pounds about the necessity for ragged schools, and yet done nothing. Instead of which, they simply set to work without any other idea in their minds than that of doing, not talking. And how the example of even the poorest man may tell upon society, hear what Dr. Guthrie, the apostle of the ragged school movement, says of the influence which the example of John Pounds, the humble Portsmouth cobbler, 
exercised upon his own working career. Quote, the interest I have been led to take in this cause is an example of how, in providence, a man's destiny, his course of life, like that of a river, may be determined and affected by very trivial circumstances. It is rather curious, at least it is interesting to me to remember, that it was by a picture I was first led to take an interest in ragged schools, by a picture in an old, obscure, decaying borough that stands on the shores of the Firth of Forth, the birthplace of Thomas Chalmers. I went to see this place many years ago, and, going into the inn for refreshment, I found the room covered with pictures of shepherdesses at their crooks, and sailors in holiday attire, not particularly interesting. But above the chimney-piece there was a large print, more respectable than its neighbors, which represented a cobbler's room. The cobbler was there himself, spectacles on his nose, an old shoe between his knees, the massive forehead and firm mouth indicating great determination of character, and beneath his bushy eyebrows benevolence gleamed out on a number of poor ragged boys and girls who stood at their lessons around the busy cobbler. My curiosity was awakened, and in the inscription I read how this man, John Pounds, a cobbler in Portsmouth, taking pity on the multitude of poor ragged children left by ministers and magistrates and ladies and gentlemen to go to ruin on the streets, how, like a good shepherd, he gathered in these wretched outcasts, how he had trained them to God and to the world, and how, while earning his daily bread by the sweat of his brow, he had rescued from misery and saved to society not less than five hundred of these children. I felt ashamed of myself. I felt reproved for the little I had done. My feelings were touched. I was astonished at this man's achievements, and I well remember in the enthusiasm of the moment saying to my companion, parentheses, and I have seen in my cooler and calmer moments nor reason for unsaying the saying, end parentheses, that man is an honor to humanity and deserves the tallest monument ever raised within the shores of Britain. I took up that man's history, and I found it animated by the spirit of him who had compassion on the multitude. John Pounds was a clever man besides, and, like Paul, if he could not win a poor boy any other way, he won him by art. He would be seen chasing a ragged boy along the quays and compelling him to come to school, not by the power of a policeman, but by the power of a hot potato. He knew the love an Irishman had for a potato, and John Pounds might be seen running, holding under the boy's nose, a potato, like an Irishman, very hot, and with a coat as ragged as himself. When the day comes when honor will be done to whom honor is due, I can fancy the crowd of those whose fame poets have sung, and to whose memory monuments have been raised, dividing like the wave, and passing the great and the noble and the mighty of the land, this poor obscure old man, stepping forward and receiving the especial notice of him who said, Inasmuch as ye did it unto one of the least of these, ye did it also to me. End quote. The education of character is very much a question of models. We mold ourselves so unconsciously after the characters, manners, habits, and opinions of those who are about us. Good rules may do much, but good models far more. 
for in the latter we have instruction in action wisdom at work good admonition and bad example only build with one hand to pull down with the other hence the vast importance of exercising great care in the selection of companions especially in youth there is a magnetic affinity in young persons which insensibly tends to assimilate them to each other's likeness mr edgeworth was so strongly convinced that from sympathy they involuntarily imitated or caught the tone of the company they frequented that he held it to be of the most essential importance that they should be taught to select the very best models quote, no company or good company end quote, was his motto lord collingwood writing to a young friend said quote, hold it as a maxim that you had better be alone than in mean company let your companions be such as yourself or superior for the worth of a man will always be ruled by that of his company it was a remark by the famous dr sydenham that everybody sometime or other would be the best or the worst for having but spoken to a good or a bad man as sir peter lyley made it a rule never to look at a bad picture if he could help it believing that whatever he did so that his pencil caught a taint of it so whoever chooses to gaze upon a debased specimen of humanity and to frequent their society cannot help gradually assimilating himself to that sort of model it is therefore advisable for young men to seek the fellowship of the good and always aim at a higher standard than themselves francis horner speaking of the advantages to himself of direct personal intercourse with high-minded intelligent men said quote, i cannot hesitate to decide that i have derived more intellectual improvement from them than from all the books i have turned over lord shelbourne afterwards marquis of lansdowne when a young man paid a visit to the venerable sherbe and was so much impressed by it that he said quote, i have travelled much but i have never been so influenced by personal contact with any man and if i ever accomplish any good in the course of my life i am certain that the recollection of m de melchabert will animate my soul so fal buxton was always ready to acknowledge the powerful influence exercised upon the formation of his character in early life by the example of the gurney family quote, it has given a colour to my life he used to say speaking of his success at the dublin university he confessed i can ascribe it to nothing but my earlham visits it was from the gurneys he quote, caught the infection end quote, of self-improvement contact with the good never fails to impart good and we carry away with us some of the blessings as travellers garments retain the odour of the flowers and shrubs through which they have passed those who knew the late john sterling intimately have spoken of the beneficial influence which he exercised on all with whom he came into personal contact many owed to him their first awakening to a higher being from him they learnt what they were and what they ought to be mr trench says of him quote, it was impossible to come in contact with his noble nature without feeling oneself in some measure ennobled and lifted up as i ever felt when i left him 
into a higher region of objects and aims than that in which one is tempted habitually to dwell. It is thus that the noble character always acts. We become insensibly elevated by him and cannot help feeling as he does and acquiring the habit of looking at things in the same light. Such is the magical action and reaction of minds upon each other. Artists also feel themselves elevated by contact with artists greater than themselves. Thus Haydn's genius was first fired by Handel. Hearing him play, Haydn's ardor for musical composition was at once excited, and but for this circumstance he himself believed that he would never have written the creation. Speaking of Handel, he said, quote, When he chooses, he strikes like the thunderbolt. And at another time, there is not a note of him but draws blood. Scarlatti was another of Handel's ardent admirers, following him all over Italy. Afterwards, when speaking of the great master, he would cross himself in token of admiration. True artists never fail generously to recognize each other's greatness. Thus Beethoven's admiration for Cherubini was regal, and he ardently hailed the genius of Schubert. Quote, Truly, said he, in Schubert dwells a divine fire. End quote. When Northcote was a mere youth, he had such an admiration for Reynolds that, when the great painter was once attending a public meeting down in Devonshire, the boy pushed through the crowd and got so near Reynolds as to touch the skirt of his coat. Quote, Which I did, says Northcote, with a great satisfaction to my mind. End quote. A true touch of youthful enthusiasm in the admiration of genius. End of section 32